three, two, two one. one. Let's go! All right. <laughs> I like okay. it. All right. I like it. We are live at Ertech 2022. Last time I was here was 2019. What is an obvious observation to me is that Ertech is smaller than it was in 2019. The 22 Ertech is smaller, but it, I feel like the engagement and like the attention around the booths and the people that I'm talking to, it's very high. You know, you, a lot of conversations, a lot of energy, right? So, I mean, it's, it's alive and well, but there's still kind of, uh, you know, something going on with the industry. It's not blowing up. People thought they were going to come here and everything was going to be wall to wall with people, or at least that's what they thought, some of them, and it's not. So well, what, what it is, is good information though. Airtech is where engineers, the geologists and the geophysicists are trying to come together and it's kind of forcing integration. You get to sit down and listen to a completions engineers report or, or you know, their, their technical talk on what they're mm -hmm. doing, how they're fracking wells now, you know, I want to do a quick introduction between you guys. We'll start with you, sir, Michael. Uh, tell us who you are and uh, give us a little background. Sure. Uh, I'm Michael Ashby. I'm a petrophysicist over at Devon. Uh, kind of been in the business for about 16 years now. I uh, started off as a uh, field engineer for Schlumberger in Is that right? southern Louisiana. Is that right? And then growing up in Ohio and going to college in Pennsylvania and then hitting the ground in Louisiana, south southern Louisiana, was definitely a, a shift in, <laughs> in uh, life expectations. But um, it, was, it, was, it was fun. And then uh, so I did that for about a like about a year and a half and then made my way to work for Baker and started off as a, uh, in their geoscience center and moved out to Midland. And I spent, Is that spent right? two and a half years out in Midland working for Baker. Um, and then they moved me to Houston, uh, into their, you know, just kind of set into our centralized group. And What'd then, you do in school? How'd you, what uh, degrees so, did you get? Uh, I went to, went to Edinburgh university, uh, in Pennsylvania. And, um, so, and then just uh, earth sciences is what I studied there. So geology and, mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, so, and then after that, yeah, like I said, made my way to, um, Baker. And then from there, I uh, was in Houston and then, uh, in 2012 started working for Apache with, uh, and that's where I started working with Joe. Is that right? Uh, Apache, and then spent, yeah. And then spent five years as a, working as a petrophysicist for them. And then went to Anadarko, uh, working in their advanced analytics and emerging technologies team. Really? Um, yep. Right on. Doing... Did you get to work with Ryan Bailey or? Yes, a little bit. Right yes. on. Yeah. So I got to I got to meet Ryan because um, he was out in Midland, and yeah. so we would we'd have some projects together right and all on. that. And then um, and I worked through essentially through like the Oxy acquisition, and then ended up leaving in. Uh, December of 19 and then oh, started wow. working with uh, started working with Devin in uh, At the, the beginning of, of 2020. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty unique, man, because a lot of a lot of folks were, you know, struggling during 2020 and getting laid off and not getting, you know, not finding those transitions, it seemed like. And you you obviously did. That's really cool. Uh, I like yeah, that. Yeah, I ended up really kind of lucking out on timing because it was February of 2020. So it was wow. like kind of right before. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> The world so it turning. really yeah it's i mean it, i'm really lucky that you know kind of everything's worked out you know in, in oh man yeah you, that time. you obviously do good work you're hard working you put yourself in an opportunity and it presents itself and you go for it man it's not luck dude it's yeah you're putting yourself in those in those positions can you ex simply explain what a petrophysicist is 
Sure. Uh, I think Joe actually may be able to give a better description, but I mean, we kind of focus on rocks, pores, and fluids. Okay. And that's like the biggest thing. And so we, we look at things in the log space or in the laboratory. So rocks that are, you know, pulled out whole cores and then a lot of lab measurements is really kind of our focus. And it's an integration discipline. So taking some of the geology end and the, the engineering end and kind of integrating everything into in kind of looking at everything kind of on a on a bigger level and that and understanding all the all those little pieces together and integrating that. Joe, introduction, sir, a little background. My name is Joe Comiskey and I'm with Devon Energy in Oklahoma City. Ah. I am going on 20 plus years in the business um, with a few more extra years thrown in there for school. So I was at Penn State in the 90s when I got involved with this. I started out more on the geophysics side, working deep water Gulf of Mexico, Whoa, right on. looking at rocks with a lot of fluids and porosity in them. <laughs> and I worked there doing a lot of quantitative 4D and time-lapse seismic wow, with right Shell on. as a research project. And then all of us moved to uh, beginning of the 2000s, moved to work for Anadarko Petroleum. And at Anadarko, we started, for me, working on rocks that were a little more challenged. (laughs) And so then that began uh, a journey where we were working on rocks going from 30% porosity and several hundreds of milladarcies to two or three orders of magnitude lower flow properties. Wow. And I spent my uh, training years there with some very good people. Eventually, I made my way to Apache Corporation in Houston, and I worked another, a whole variety of different things in the early 2000s through mid 2010s. Man. Uh, a lot of international work as well as uh, source rock and right conventional. On. And then four years ago, there was a lot of us who left Apache around the same time. And we all split up between Anadarko and Oxy and Devon. And then uh, now we've gotten back to sort of a central team where uh, we're working together on a lot of good projects. Right. We're a lot more focused than we used to be. We've made a lot of the mistakes that we're going to make. Uh, we had made them previously and learned from that. Right. So one of the reasons I'm here this week is we presented. We're part of Devon is part of the hydraulic fracture test site. Oh, F- which, HFTS or yes. Okay. So just to be clear, there are several stages of HFTS. Okay. Hydraulic fracture test site, and we are part of. We are part of, there's one and two. So there's a part one and part two. Same location? Different location. Yeah, yeah. so HFTS2 was out in the Delaware basin. Yeah, the first, well, we'll go back a little bit. The first part of HFTS1 started in the Midland Basin. Ah. And it was targeting CO2 injection. Oh, whoa. In the Wolf Camp. And then... It moved to the New Mexico-Texas border in Loving County. Nice. Which would have been the Anadarko and now Oxy-operated area where they drilled a slant core in between two fractured wells. 
and did all of those oh, analytics. Wow. That was a big topic of last year's Ertech. Okay. Where they had a special session and would present all of the engineering and geology aspects Man. of it. So now there were there was money that came up again to do to go back to HFTS part or HFTS one, but part three. Oh, Part three is in the Eagleford, and we did a true horizontal core about 200 feet away from a two completed well, a one completed well, where we were intersecting uh, hydraulic fractures with some prop in, in them. Wow, right on. So we had the opportunity to present that as a team meaning it's a special session and we don't have to write a paper for it. <laughs> One of the few exceptions, right? <laughs> yeah. So we presented that as a team. We started at the rocks and the pores and we showed where we had more hydraulic fractures. So getting into a little bit more of what we do, there's always been kind of a traditional definition of petrophysics that was very log oriented. Mm -hmm. And through the years, we've gotten better at measuring the fluid content in these types of systems, particularly the movable oil. Mm -hmm. So there's been a lot of core analysis that's been done in the past, which is perfectly fine for what it is. And that is they define whatever fluids are left in the subsurface as or left in the rock when you bring it up. And a lot of times that tends to overstate how much oil can actually move through that system. So then as an industry in general, and also as Devon, we've gotten better at detecting the movable fluid. Mm -hmm. And then in this particular case, we are looking at uh, less of a light oil movable component where we've already seen a high uh, frequency of hydraulic fractures. Hmm. That means we've drained that part. And as you move away from where the hydraulic fractures are, we tend to see more movable oil or lighter oil, which is also a reason why refracts have become a very key part of our business in right Eagleford. On. Right on. And there's lots of other components as to why it works there. Maybe not necessarily in other places, but one portion of it is as favorable geomechanics. And the other part is that uh, we are reconnecting rock that is not drained in a primary sense. And then finally, we are eventually going to be re-injecting some type of natural gas back nice. into the subsurface Beautiful. to give that remaining oil a little bit of a kick. Yeah, let's do and it. And help kick it out. And let's do it. Also, it's a solvent, so it's like cleaning your rocks with uh, soap to get, the, to get the oil out. Right on. Yeah, very interesting stuff. I I got a lot of questions on, on a lot of that, but what I want to ask is simply, can you explain the difference between conventional and unconventional? Oh, I'd love to. <laughs> um, now, this is interesting, and I'll go into some of my observations, is that uh, I've had the opportunity, and frankly, the a lot of it is luck, and that I started working in the conventional world and yeah. I'll define what that is. And then I eventually was almost 50-50 for a while. So working challenged reservoirs and then 
uh, more conventional reservoirs, both U.S. and international wow. for Apache. And now I'm almost, I am I'm almost full-time unconventional for a while. And now... As I say, you're starting to look at some conventional stuff again now. Now that carbon capture, <laughs> pure capture uh, is coming go. back, we got to go back and look at all the conventional reservoirs, U.S. onshore again. <laughs> now, right here's on. the thing. What I've noticed is with our business, particularly in North America, is that a lot of people in uh, the ranks that are younger than me only had an opportunity to work in mudstones, tight rocks. Uh -huh. And that's a great place to work and to start, but then it's a whole other world working these conventional systems. So I'll get into my definition of it. Yeah. Uh, I teach I teach a class not just on that topic, but that definition comes up. So of course, number one, the definition is going to depend on what your discipline is and your right what you want to focus on right i keep it very simple and i keep it more in a reservoir engineering and a fluids okay sense and it's that in conventional reservoirs you tend to have fluid distributions that are controlled by the rock's capillarity okay or and another way to think about it it is a traditional system where you have a trap and a seal and you tend to have the lighter fluids at the top of the reservoir, like a gas cap. And as you go deeper, you go through an oil column and then finally a water leg. Yep, just like a gun barrel. So now that rock can be high perm, it can be low perm, it can be somewhere in oh, between. Okay. okay. It Some of it may need to be stimulated and some of it not. Yeah. So the fact that the fluids are controlled by buoyancy is for me a definition of a conventional uh, so like unconventional that. then okay is where you have a, a source rock that is essentially a, a a pressure pump and the capillary pressure that is generated in that system is from the source rock pushing out hydrocarbons either into other parts of that source rock or into some thinner relatively sure. higher perm beds so we, at least I do, and I fully recognize some people may say an unconventional system is something that requires several million pounds of propent and fluid. Yeah. That's fine. But for us, we take it back to the definition of the rocks and you can have, uh, you can have systems that are relatively tight. But if they follow an, a, a normal capillarity system, then I would consider that a conventional reservoir. That's conventional, unconventional. Yeah. And then with Delaware Basin, we have a little bit of both. So say, wow. this is where it's we start the hybrid the system. Hybrids, yeah. The hybrid system, yeah. yeah. So we have a hybrid systems in, in uh, Delaware Basin in the Bone Spring and going down into the Wolf Camp XY. Hmm. And then... Our newest one that at least what we're working on as Devon is the Bakken system. Right so on. You will hear people talk about the Bakken and it's a lot more than just a shale. And then I don't even like the word shale. It's more of an organic mudstone. Okay. The source rock part of it. Right. right. At least the source rock part. But then there's the, so it's a real interesting formation because it's really like almost like a sandwich type play where you have a more 
conventional in nature carrier bed in the middle of it okay it's the actual reservoir and you have two source rocks sitting above and below it wow and so that that's kind of the so it is it is kind of a hybrid play but more tradition or more conventional as wow. a like the reservoir itself getting still it being lower still being lower lower porosity lower permeability and still requiring hydraulic stimulation but it is it is directly sourced right into it right right from the localized and um, the, the the meat of the sandwich is what a dolomite a sand what's it's not a it's, it's not a mudstone no it's not a mudstone it, it is a more carbonate dolomite and oh, it's some, some sand in it too depending is on right? depending on where you are and within the like which bed you're in sure man that sounds it's awesome. a really mixed lithology how and thick then, uh, it varies um Hundreds of feet. No, that middle, no. the middle part the of middle the cookie is, can be as thin as fifty feet. Yeah, <laughs> and still deliver. We tend to see a lot of vertical connectivity throughout that system. Wow! Initially, and then through time, it will close down certain parts. Yeah, because wow. there's also there's also another reservoir right below it, the Three Forks, which is yeah, which is a, a, a dolomitic. Whoa. Silty siltstone, siltstone yeah, that, and it, you know, I would classify it as more conventional in nature, but it's still, but it's still again, it requires wow. hydraulic yeah. stimulation. So there is and, a water, yes, leg that you yeah. can map and make sense of in terms of a contact in yeah. the hydrothermal dolomite or in the oh oh in the dolomite. Yeah, yes, in the in the, the three forks. One. Yeah, the lower one. Yeah, and so, that of course, there's lots going on there, um, and. That's probably one of the more mature areas in North America in terms of development. Yeah. And it was both for Devon and for the industry. And now we're coming back to it. And for us, it is a natural place for us to solve part of the, the gas flaring problem mm. in which you take your gas and re-injecting it right. instead of flaring it. Hell so, yes, I don't know why we didn't do that at the very beginning. Uh, exactly, we should have been looking at this a long time ago. I'm really happy that North America in general has finally gotten it through their heads <laughs> that not only are you wasting money, you're wasting a free Resource. extra reservoir uh, energy maker, yeah. right? Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, I mean, that could have been a part of the whole development plan from the very beginning. I, I wonder what would have happened. You know, how many less wells would probably have been drilled? I know. Just getting well, so I mean, much the, more recovery. The one thing that's always the political piece, it's, everything goes through fits and starts too. So it's like hard to plan that infrastructure to cue sure. the gaps, the gas capture and get it to market or sure. inject it because you don't know what the, the next year is going to bring for right. sure. Now, what, and when you were doing that 4D study, I always get fascinated with the idea that you can send sound waves into the earth and then you drain the, the fluid and gases out of it, which are totally having an effect on how the rock is reflecting the sound. And so the image change is because of the fluid and, and volatile change. Right. What does that actually look like? Like, what did you see? What were yes. kind of, Yeah. What were you going to see? So I'll give some particulars because people can look it up if they're interested. It was basically the best subsurface laboratory you could ask to work on as a, as a new person in the business. Yeah. So it was the Bullwinkle Field, which was one of Shell's, one of their first major deep water discoveries. Wow. 
it was in a plyo Pleistocene turbidite in a nice uh, salt withdrawal mini basin. And uh, it was four, at least four hydraulically interconnected sands that are a combination, they're turbidites. And it's a combination of sheet sands and then channelized sands that actually cut through the, the, the entire system and connected up everything up hydraulically. So there was a big water pressure pump pushing oh, all the wow. hydrocarbons up. Where so was that coming from? Where was that pump coming from, you think? It's all the water that's sitting below it. It's a huge water drive. So it's the density stratified fluids and over time, all that brine gets brought to the bottom and it literally is pushing, it's, it's yeah. pushing itself yeah. up. So when they designed that platform, they thought they would need a lot more water injectors. They just <laughs> couldn't fathom in the 80s that you could have sands that are connected over miles and miles. It's green, can it's about 1200 feet of water which back in the 80s was deep water. Yeah. It's off the sh just off the shelf. Wow. And the, connect the connectivity is pretty interesting because when you look at the things that are written about it, uh, whenever they started producing and you had water replacing oil, mm -hmm. then your impedance in the sand was increasing. Mm. And it was increasing in a, at a rate or at a magnitude that you would predict with your typical rock physics models with fluid substitution. And then you could model that as a seismic response and you could see a dimming through time Whoa. where you've had water replacing oil. Whoa, right on. And so there's more. <laughs> so we're talking about, think of a bowl. Yeah. There was the bullwinkle field on one end of the bowl. And then on the other side of the bowl, there was a field called Rocky. Rocky bowl wheel. Got and it. it was the smaller one, which <laughs> makes sense. Yep. Rocky was unidentified. They maybe had one or two exploration wells that confirmed the presence of hydrocarbon. And it was an oil. And they just left it there for a while. They didn't know quite what to do with it. It wasn't as big as bullwinkle. But when they started producing Bullwinkle, the pressure drawdown went all the way across the basin, three miles across, and started drawing down the pressure what? on Rocky. Yes, they were totally connected. And Rocky went below wow. the bubble point. What? Which meant that when the seismic survey came across Rocky, uh -huh. you actually decreased the impedance because you were letting out gas. Whoa. So, so Rocky lit up partially. And Bullwinkle. And Bullwinkle. Dim. And then it was dimming where you replaced it with water. But then <laughs> at the very attic of Bullwinkle, you had gas also coming out of solution. At the same time, you're also compacting the rock. So what happened at the very time, because you're withdrawing the pour pressure. Now these are very high compressibility sands. So, and some of these compressibilities were the highest anyone had ever really worked on Whoa. at the time. Uh, and Shell, being Shell, had an entire research program just devoted on compaction 
and it, whether or not these things were really compacting at the rate that they thought that they, they would thought be. They would be. Yeah. It turned out that they were. So Whoa. to make a long story short, uh, at Bullwinkle, at the very top of the reservoir, we had gas coming out, which would you would makes the rock slower. Yeah. But then at the same time, you were also compacting it. Making it fast. So what yes, happened was they canceled each other out. Is that right? And at the very top of Bullwinkle, it's kind of the signal there is no change or not enough that you could reliably detect it within, a. I think it was six or seven years of production that we were able to image wow. there. Right. On. So like I said, it was the perfect subsurface laboratory. And I was so lucky that when I worked on that, I went to work for Anadarko on a field that was, we thought was a close analog in deep water. I, I was very lucky to be able to come out of school with a tool set and just jump right into it, work in another deep water field. But then as time went on, I started working more on tight gas sands. And we were also drilling deep Delaware Basin gas in the Atoka. Oh, man. And we were ignoring all of the oil up in the Wolf Camp. This is right smack in Loving County. Is that right? We all knew it was there. Yeah. We were running some very sophisticated logging programs. And it's kind of when I switched from working conventionals to unconventionals. We would have all these oil shows going through <laughs> the Third Bone Wolf Camp. The other thing was we were focused deep. Yeah. And the dry gas, so above the Woodford, but below, say, the the, the Woodford Sister. or the, the Wolf Camp. Right. And um, we would drill under balance through the whole liquid portion. Once huh. in a while, they take a kick yeah. of liquid. So they could set casing somewhere in the Wolf Camp, then go deep for the dry gas, all vertical wells. This is the Haley Field with Dana Darko. Right on. So I had an early introduction to that system and everyone, including management, were focused on the deep gas. We always knew there was oil up there, or at least in my simple mind then, there was nothing I could do with the logs to make the oil go away. <laughs> we were running pretty sophisticated logs, so we had cut down on some of the unknowns. So it's been a pleasure to come back, work a bunch of other things. Yeah. Uh, work with other people like Michael and uh, revisit it again yeah. uh, with Devin because that is one of our core areas where we operate. Man. And then also knowing that we did a lot of things short-sightedly in the beginning of the liquid source rock type mm -hmm. of exploration. We did very simple core measurements and things like that where now we're focused more on fluids. Nice. And... Uh, uh, Devin is pretty well known as a coring. We take a lot of core and we're recognized for doing that. And we have about eight or nine coming up through the end of the year and maybe first quarter of next year right across the board. You can have a lot of rock to look at. And we are there to extrude personally every foot of that core as it comes out Man. with the various commercial labs here in Houston. Right on. Well, one thing when we were talking about unconventionals and conventional and the whole idea of, of the difference between the two, I've been going with the analogy of this room being the pore space of the reservoir and a conventional reservoir has all the doors are open. 
to the pore space. That's a conventional reservoir. And the unconventional is all, all the doors are locked, but maybe one of them, right? And there's one open door and that's the unconventional. And the idea is, well, if we can just break down the doors with a hammer, right? And that's what we've been physically focusing on for like the pretty much the whole development of this has been physically breaking down the doors to get that unconventional to flow. What I think I'm seeing and what I believe I'm seeing is the chemistry is developing. The idea that you don't, you might not have to physically break down the door. You might be able to diffuse through it somehow. There might be a chemical reaction that we need to be doing. There, there's something going on with geochemistry and unlocking the potential of these unconventionals with chemistry and applying that to drive the physics, not physics driving physics, chemistry driving physics. I, I really believe in that. And then, and then we got Geomark, we get to sit down and I'm learning all about their database, worldwide database. I mean, how are you guys using geochemistry right now? And, and what do you, where do you see the future of, of the unconventional play? Yes. So Geomark, number one, it has a, a long history with some very experienced people. And uh, we, we use Geomark for all of our geochemical really? measurements. Right on. Uh, Mostly focused on source rock and movable oil within the system where we are looking at various parts of the rock, not only when we drill the well, but then as we're producing it and we're taking right oil on. samples at different times right through on. the history. And uh, we can then tell what parts of the reservoir have been draining and what parts Man. have not. Yeah. So there's, and we're also characterizing the rocks much better the equipment that we use for doing this is getting better so we're using pyrolysis we're using different solvent techniques mm. and uh, as as these systems get better and faster and more precise we're able to move more material through it and gain and then right we can store large amounts of data say with a chromatograph where we're looking at various peaks within that composition. And then as an industry, I think some companies have done better than others, but let's say in Delaware Basin, what do you produce more of water or oil, <laughs> right? So everyone, and I've even seen it with my engineer friends or everybody wants the history match on the oil. I'm like, and I'm half engineer, so I'm like, well, we produce more water. Shouldn't you be history let's matching the water? Let's focus on that. Now, also, and it really depends on the company. I can just tell with companies that are similar to Devon being independent, having a long and storied history, mostly out of Oklahoma. So smaller company, low cost, fast producer in the past. They would just focus on the oil sampling, maybe. Okay. They're happy enough, you know, to have a 10 or 20% rate of return and just go find the next one. So I think what our, what we've done at Devon and companies like us, we've gotten much better at characterizing the chemical makeup of the water. Right on. And all of the different parts of that water so that you can tell where it's coming from and when. Right on. Right on. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, with everything that's going on in the Permian and, and the idea that we, we must find value in the brines, there, there's got to be value there. It can't all just be waste. It, it doesn't work. It's not going to work. There's, that's the breakthrough. And you're, you're saying you're now you, you're seeing this focus on that and you're focusing on that. 
man, I wish I was on the walls of those rooms when you guys are looking at that chemistry and checking out, like, the, watching these changes. It so. really, for at least for Devin, and that's the other thing with Devin, uh, I think there was a move to do that at one point, then it fell out of favor. And then we really started getting back into it for Anadarko Basin, our backyard. And then naturally it moved into Delaware where we have a lot more activity. So yeah, it's all of the basins now. And then not to mention now with carbon capture and a focus on mm -hmm. the water resource and staying away from USDWs, which are defined as having a salinity less than 10,000 TDS. Whoa. Uh, in order for us to store CO2, we have to go through a lot of rules with the EPA oh. to show that it is never going to affect in one way or the other any type of source of drinking water. And Whoa. I'll just put it this way, with the way the environmental laws are written now, is that it is easier to store H2S in the ground permanently compared to CO2. Wow. Wow. There's a lot of H2S that gets re-injected in yeah. the Permian. Yeah. Both sides and in the middle and in the, the carbonate <laughs> platform. But because of the fact that CO2 is a little more politically volatile, uh -huh. we have a lot more rules we have to follow. And I actually like the fact that there are rules out there. Sure. I remember when we started in the shale oil part and people would just go out and drill well and do whatever they thought would work whatever their neighbor was doing. Yeah. But we'll pump 20% more. Yeah. <laughs> so, and carbon capture is going to be a part of the Permian. Okay. Right. And there's, and Midland, Central Basin, Delaware, there's different aspects of those three parts of the basin that are going to be playing different roles. Right on. The thing is, there's a very specific set of rules, a lot of work, a lot of homework that all of the operators need to do to uh, get the type of permits that are required to sequester CO2. A lot more effort than wow. even H2S. Wow. And that is permanent storage, not necessarily EOR. Right, so there's a difference between the, the utilization versus actual storage, storage, right? So like you always hear that, you know, CCUS. Right. So the EOR, the EOR is gonna be more of that, that utilization. Sure. Whereas the storage, permanent storage is gonna be much more um, rigorous uh, on the regulations, it seems, is what, what we're seeing. Right on. Well, I appreciate the heck out of you guys sharing time with me today at Urtech 2022. I learned a lot. I appreciate you sharing that information. I'm rooting for you guys at Devin Man. You guys are doing some really cool stuff. You got a lot of work ahead, but you're eager about it. You're actually looking forward to going by foot by foot on nine cores that are coming out of the ground. Like everything that's coming up and everything you're talking about, I can see it. You guys are enthusiastic about that. And I'm rooting for you, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.